continue in our studies in Genesis. I'm hoping you have you do have the PowerPoint. Of, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Part two. Good. All right. Let's uh, let's look to the Lord. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Savior. We thank you that He is the Messiah. That He is the one who has um, come to save us, our rescuer, the things that we've been singing this morning, our lighthouse, the uh, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. All of these things point us to one person, that's the Lord Jesus, our Savior. May we look to him this morning. I pray if there's anybody here this morning, whether it's an adult or a child, who does not know Jesus Christ, that through the, the presentation of the word, that they may see him and see him as the savior of the world and come and put their full trust in him and him alone. We ask for help in, um, as, as we study your word, that you would guide us and direct in all things. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. I'm gonna do a very quick review of where we were because it's been a few weeks. Um, and uh, so I, I'm gonna go through quickly. I have to say, I'll tell you right up front, I'll be totally transparent with you. This will be the most science lesson-ish message on the book of Genesis that you'll get, okay? So if you don't like science, I hope you'll love it by the time we're done, okay? Uh, so I, I, I happen to love science, so real science. All right, as the foundation, and for our Mexican brothers, I have tried to put as much of the scriptures up here in Spanish for you to understand. I, I feel for you. You come here for four hours every Sunday listening to us speak a language you don't understand, and I just was hoping this might help you a little bit to see something familiar on the screen. I picked a version that I had. If it's not the one you like, then you read it at home. <laughs> All right. <laughs> bueno. So, the basis for our study is the Bible and the authority of Scripture. We looked at that the last time. If you're going to study beginnings, you need to go back to where you have something that gives you a record of beginnings, and the Bible is that book. Um, you do not find anything other than speculation in other books that do not have eyewitness accounts of what happened in the beginning. The Bible does, however, provide that. Secondly, the foundation, Genesis is a foundation. The Bible, the whole Bible stands on the foundation of Genesis 1, verse 1. If there is no God, and he did not create the heaven and the earth, then there is no point in looking anywhere else in the scriptures. Put it on a shelf and check out. Because the foundation for everything you will read in the rest of the scripture goes back to the fact that there is a God. And he is the creator. And he is eternal. The beginning. Everything had a beginning except for God. He is the only one. He's uncreated. He is, 
He is eternal. He exists outside of time. We cannot understand that because we exist in time. Our minds are bound by time. But God is, is the originator. So on, on all of these things, the Bible is the foundation. Genesis 1 verse 1 is the foundation of the scriptures. Everything had a beginning, and God is the originator. And he is uncreated. He is eternal. The verses I put up here are very important for you to understand. And I'm glad that the Sunday school is up here this morning. And you might say, oh man, like, I'd rather get my lesson downstairs. You will next week. But the Bible has a word for you, for the young people. And it says in Ecclesiastes, now this is the wisest man who ever lived. He had great wisdom. He was a king. He had great wealth. And he wrote this word at the end of evaluating all of life. He said, remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say I have no pleasure in them. You know, as you go along in life, there are more difficulties that will come along. There are things that are gonna come along that are, that are going to be hard to go through. Are, and then as you get old, we, we start dealing with health problems, we start dealing with money problems, we start dealing with all kinds of things. The time to get ready for that is when you are young. And the time to do that is, is when you are young and to remember your creator in the days of your youth. Prepare for those days that are coming. The other thing that's a very important verse is in Colossians chapter one, verses 15 to 18. This is actually read yesterday at the coronation of King Charles II, or third, whatever he is, third. Um, he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. We read in that verse that Jesus Christ himself is the creator of all things that he is the one who made everything, including you. He holds all things together. Everything, the, the, the fact that planets don't fly into each other, the fact that molecules don't just dissolve in your chair, are all held together in Jesus Christ. He has designed them that way. And then Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I put this up the last time, this quote, Dr. Henry Morris, he would be considered the founder of modern creationism. He, he is, to me, a hero of the faith. He is my Martin Luther. <laughs> uh, I, I really love the things that have come from Dr. Morris. I have his commentary, commentaries on Genesis, on Job, on Jonah, on Revelation, on the Psalms. Uh, he... he, he is a brilliant, brilliant hydrologist, a brilliant scientist. Yet when he came to Christ, he realized something's wrong here. What I learned doesn't match up with what the Bible is teaching. And he spent his whole life, his whole life, teaching biblical creation. 
And what he said is the only proper way to interpret Genesis chapter 1 is not to interpret it at all. That is, we accept the fact that it was meant to say exactly what it says. When I came across that quote, I thought, I love that quote. I'm a simple guy. I am a very simple guy. And when I read something, I like it in simplicity. Boil it down, don't use big words, and don't use abstract thoughts. Just give it to me straight. That gives it to me straight. If I want to understand Genesis, read it and take it, as it at its word. It's a foundational book. In, in Genesis, it gives the foundation for the doctrine of sin, the fall, the redemption, justification, the promise of the Messiah and Jesus, and Jesus Christ, the personality and person of God, the kingdom of God. Genesis also is where we learn the origins of the universe, order, complexity, the solar system, the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, life, man, marriage, good and evil, language, government, culture, nations, religion. All of these things we learn from the book of Genesis. Now my introduction. <laughs> In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we have looked at Genesis 1 and, 1 and see it as a, as a foundational verse. Simply state it. I like that. Just simply state it. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 explains the source and it explains how everything was made. God did it. If you believe Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, you will have no problem believing the rest of the Bible. Everything has such intricate design in it that there has to have been some intelligence and information that has been put into all of these things. It didn't just happen. Order, complexity, the laws of science and thermodynamics will rule out the idea of chance and chaos creating anything. It's just impossible. Any of us who own a car will know that. Our car turns to randomness after a few years, even with rust check. It starts to destroy itself. It's at the mechanics way more than it used to be. Our bodies, as we get older, we're at the doctor as we get older, more and more. Things are in, left to themselves are in decay. So how could they have created themselves and, and gotten better and, and improved just by random chance? The laws of thermodynamics and the laws of science show us otherwise. So I want to look at some of the facts of the created universe and, and point to some of the design a little later on. So what about evolution? And I, I, I did say right from the start, I'm not going to get into discussing and making this a debate between creation and evolution. But I have to address it. I have to address it. Because it's... it's what everybody hears all day. You know, there's, there's programs that come on either the History Channel, the National Geographic Channel, or the Smithsonian, and I think, man, I'd love to watch that. And 31 seconds in, I'm going, oh, I'm going to watch a hockey game. Because the first thing I get, billions of years. Millions of years. By random chance. Evolution has taught us this. Huh? Evolution doesn't teach you anything. Evolution is not a person. So, so you... you, you you know, it, it's all around us. It's just, it's, we're just pummeled with it all day, every day. 
And if you don't think your kids are pummeled with it, <laughs> you might want to go to school with them for one day. You might want to watch what they watch for one day and see what, see what they see. So here's the thing about evolution. I mean, everybody believes it, right? It's a given. One day at work, at my former place of employment, I said, well, I, I, don't, I don't hold to that. I, I, I believe in divine creation. Ha! <laughs> it killed me, man. Like, seriously, like you always come up with the best jokes. No, it wasn't a joke. I do. And it was like, whoa. Well, we're never talking about this again. I mean, it was just like, I am, I'm out in the cornfield chewing on a straw. I, I, I'm just like, wow. You see, first off, I find that most intelligent people believe in evolution. Most intelligent people believe in evolution. Do you know why? Because they believe that most intelligent people believe in evolution. That's why. I'm going to believe this because everybody else does. I mean, I have to believe this. I have no facts. I have no basis. But he's really smart, and that's what he says happens. So I believe that. I'm not going to look it up for myself. I'm not going to dig into this. But I'm just going to believe what's given to me on the spoon. The modern mind today believes that evolution is a done deal. Case closed. Can't even be argued. Only some idiotic fundamentalist out there will believe that a literal interpretation of the Bible. Everybody knows. I mean, try to talk publicly about it. Like I said, I did in the lunchroom one day. Laughed out of the place. They will just say evolution's a fact, it's known. But you know what? In the past, these, this is just a list of scientists and what they studied and what they, what they mastered in science that all believed in creation. All of these scientists of the past were creationists, going back to the 1800s, going back to the 1400s, going back... To, to, to the early 1900s. And, and, and like areas of, of surgery, bacteriology, uh, gynecology, hydraulics, hydro, hydrography, and so on. These, are, these are, are founders of some of these sciences. They have all been creationists. They understood. Because of the order we're seeing in science, there has to be a a brilliant intelligence behind all of this. Today, modern scientists of, of recent years. That's quite an impressive list. Actually, they all have PhDs as far as I know, or doctorates of some kind. They have studied and studied and studied the sciences and have come to the conclusion, yes, there is a God. And there is a God who is the creator. So don't let anybody tell you that you're kidding me. That is so backwards to think that creation is true. There are many brilliant minds. Um, molecular biologist Michael Denton, for one. I didn't put his quote up, but he said... The evolutionary theory is still, as it was in Darwin's time, a highly speculative hypothesis entirely without direct factual support. 
You know the fossil record, and I've got fossils in my home, and I look at them all every once in a while, and, and I find it really, really brilliant, fossils that have, been, that, that, have, that have been made from materials that have been buried. And I look at it, and I think, you know what, the fossil record does not support, does not support evolution. It has not. In fact, Charles Darwin said that there are problems with the fossil records. He said, I could sell this thing big time if only the fossil record agreed with what I'm trying to say. It just did not. David Rupp, who is an evolutionary paleontologist, he says, we are now 120 years after Darwin and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. We now have a quarter of a million fossil species, but the situation hasn't changed much. Ironically, we have fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. By this, I mean that some of the classic cases of Darwin's change in the fossil record, such as evolution of the horse in North America, have been discarded or modified as a result of a more detailed information. That's from the Field Museum of Natural History Bulletin 50, page 20 to 29. So this guy is an evolutionist. He is not a creationist. And what he is saying is, I can dig all day and pull up fossils. I do not find anything that takes me from a monkey to a man. Anywhere. You know, I won't use that illustration because our time is short. You know, the Bible tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. When you look at your own body, when you understand... For instance, you go to a mirror and you look at your eye and, and, you, and you turn the light on, you turn the light off and you watch how, how the, the, the um, iris, how the iris closes and opens and, and you know, I, I had trouble with one eye and I realized, wow, I, I'm pretty, pretty intricately made. That, that can't have happened by chance. One eye, let alone two, that would see actually in 3D, I mean, those, those, those things have such incredible design. Your body has such incredible design in it. If you stop and think for a minute, where did that come from? Why? Why is my body so intricately designed? Pick up a flower. They're coming out now, a little bit. I've got daffodils. So you pick up a flower. Bob probably has a million at his place. But if, if, if you look at the, at the flower and you see how it's all made, and you see the reproduction that happens in a flower and how it makes a seed that makes another flower and so on and so on. Madness to think that that happened by chance. It cannot happen by chance. So again, God created, and I accept it, God created the heavens and the earth because the Bible says it is so. The purpose of studying Genesis is not to make you and me into biologists or geologists or astronomers. But the whole purpose in doing this is to point us to Jesus the Messiah. That's where we want to go with this. But I think it's very important that you, that you understand and you trust the Bible as the word of God. So, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, This is, verse 2, people say, is a troublesome verse. (laughs) 
I've not really run over many troublesome verses in the Bible. Um, the earth was formless and void, it says in verse two. Formless and void. I like the way the, the, um, C, the, the CEV is the contemporary English version, the way it puts it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, same as NASB or King, New King James. And then verse two says, the earth was barren with no form of life and under a roaring ocean covered with darkness, but the spirit of God was moving over the water. I really like the way that put that. It just, it, it made a picture for me. Verse one ends with, and the earth. Verse two begins, and the earth was. How long ago? Doesn't say. Billions of years? Doesn't say. Thousands of years? Doesn't say. No one can prove billions of years scientifically. It has not been proven scientifically. It cannot be done. Dating methods, and I worked actually at Dalhousie in the, in the age dating lab back when I was, when I was a student. Uh, one of my, my jobs in the geology department was to prepare samples for, for dating, not going out on Friday night to a movie or anything like that, but, but uh, you know, people used to say, what are you doing? I'm dating some rocks this weekend. Really? <laughs> nice. So, so I would go up and I would prepare them for potassium argon, carbon-14, uh, strontium rubidium dating. And those methods were supposed to tell you how, how old these rocks were. And I do remember the guy who was running the department being frustrated one day. He's going through and he goes, oh, what's the problem? I'm going to have to, you know what, we're going to have to go to, I'm, I'm making this part up, what the conversation was because it was 40 years ago. We're going to have to go to strontium rubidium, I think, because I'm not getting the dates that I should be getting. Okay. So how imagine if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, mm, I really want to say lung cancer, but I'm not getting that, so let's do another kind of a test so I can get lung cancer. I mean, that's, what, that's basically what you're doing. It doesn't say this rock is three billion years old, but I need it to be three billion years old, so let's change the test. Uh, that, that, that's, that's not science. I'm sorry, that's not science. That's, that's almost witchcraft. I mean, it, 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 what is it? I don't even know what to call that. But that, that's, what, that's what happens. Dating methods are very problematic. Sometimes you find things that are hundreds of years old that are dated as millions of years old. So the only way to really know for sure is to have an eyewitness account. So I have to ask you a question. Were you there? No. Uh, Ken Ham always says, were you there? <laughs> were you there? No, I wasn't there. <laughs> but were you there? No. But we know someone who was, God, who declares in his word, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Later on, Jesus Christ created and made all things. He was there in the beginning. He actually walked this earth, the creator, the one who did all of this. The eyewitness came to this earth. You see, God said to Job, when Job went through and Sam did a nice job of going through the book of Job and take, taking us all the way to that great chapter, chapter 38, when God said, okay, you know what, Job, why don't you sit down for a minute because this is going to take a, a few minutes. I got 84 questions for you. And here's the first one. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In other words, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. You weren't there. I was. So I take God's eyewitness account for what he did. When I read in the word of God, I made the heavens and the earth. I take it that he made the heavens and the earth. When Jesus says in, in Matthew, in six days God created the heavens and the earth, I take it that the one who did it knows what he's talking about. 
Not billions of years. Why 6,000? Well, God made everything in six days. That's what the scriptures teach. The first people on day six, Genesis chapter five, when we get there, gives a timeline from Adam to Noah. And then from Noah, genealogies in the scriptures show us that it's about 4,000 years to get from Adam to Jesus Christ. And we know that we are 2,000 years plus a little bit from the time of Jesus Christ. Therefore, about 6,000 years. That, it's just simple. So is there a gap between one and two? I will tell you right up front, I do not see it. I'll tell you right up front, I used to hold to the gap theory. I did. I held to the gap theory because I studied science that told me millions of years, and I came to Christ, and now my Bible tells me, hmm, I don't think it's millions of years, but maybe it is, so how do I fit what I've learned and paid thousands and thousands of dollars to Dalhousie for into what I'm learning in my adult Sunday school class? How do, how do, I, how do, how do I make that work? So I read a book, and I'll tell you, it's a great book for, for the most part, but the first chapter is not. And I read a book, and it turned me into a gap theory guy, and the book was called The Invisible War by Donald Gray Barnhouse. Now, I love Donald Gray Barnhouse. I think he's a great preacher, a great teacher. I have a few of his commentaries, but I do not agree with him on this. I did at the time, and I read through it. And then as I read through the scriptures, as I, as I started thinking about things, I came to the conclusion, I'm wrong on this. The man who led me to Christ, he still subscribes to the idea that there's a gap between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And in that time, there was a fallen creation. There was a destroyed creation. This is when the fossils were laid down. There was death of dinosaurs. There was death of all this stuff. And, and all of these things happened. There are many people, and there are many good Christian folks who believe that. I don't discount their, their faith and their zeal. But the scriptures do not teach that. You see... Before Adam, to try to insert millions of years in here and say, okay, that's when Satan fell, that's when there was a catastrophe, the earth was formless and void. I go back to this. The earth was created, in verse one, by God, heavens and the earth. The earth was barren without form of life and under a roaring ocean covered with darkness. That's just the state of the newly created earth. Esther made biscuits last week. And you know what? When she made the biscuits, she threw it all in the big stand mixer and all that stuff, and I walked by and I looked, and guess what they were? They were formless and void. <laughs> they were sitting on the counter, formless and void, in a big batch. And she cut them out. She worked them. Put them in the oven. They came out. They were delicious, by the way. So... The state of the earth, God created it. It was a formless and void blob, momentarily. And then the Spirit of God is moving on the face of the waters. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all working in the creation of this earth. You see, this whole idea of ruin and reconstruction, it was in the 19th century, Thomas Chalmers uh, kind of revived this whole idea. It's 100% formulated by man trying to take the idea of millions of years and add it into their Bible. That's what it is. I need to take science and add it into my Bible. Science that is 
taught in school. Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Six days. It says six days. Not one day, three billion years, and five more days. Six days. This is the scriptures. See, the gap theory is impossible scientifically. It's destructive theologically. Once you start thinking of this, and you start thinking that there was death that occurred on this earth before Adam, you've got a problem. You've got a big problem. Because the scriptures tell me that in Romans chapter five, verse 12, it says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's a problem if you think that there was struggle and death and, and ripping and tearing of dinosaurs and all of this thing, everything died before that. I don't believe that at all. And as we go a little further this morning in the next 15 minutes or so, there are other things about the initial creation that would indicate that there was no creation. Ugh, I thought it was good, but it's not good. Boop, let's start a new one. You think God works that way? Seriously? You think that that's the way that the God of heaven works? I'm going to make a creation and then I'm going to say, ah, you know what, uh, let's start it over again. I don't think that that's the way God works. So what does it mean without form and void? Well, the Hebrew words are toho va boho. So, sounds like the guy was playing the drum. <laughs> Initially, the primarily meaning of these words is unformed and uninhabited. Esther's biscuits, okay? Think of that. It's just unformed and uninhabited. It's just a, a blob that God made. Material. And then he created from that material, he formed the earth. He formed all that we see. Again, back to that verse. It says, the earth was barren without form or uh, of life. It was under a roaring ocean covered with darkness. There's a whole thing about, you know, how do I translate this? Was this or became that? Uh, you know what? Let's not get into... Like, really, the scriptures warn us about getting into these debates over, over words that are, are meaningless. Like, when you look at it, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, the earth, water-based planet, not a cool molten blob as, see, Big Bang, okay? Kaboom! Now I've got a big molten blob and it's going to cool down into something. Scriptures tell us, no, it was water-based, the, the, the earth was, was, was based with water. Most of what makes you up, most of what makes up this earth is water. It's, it's the primary substance. So when God made everything, he didn't make everything and say, yeah, you know what, this isn't working out for me. Toss it aside and let's go and let's recreate something on another day. Six days of creation. Believe it or not, I am going to get through this whole thing. First day. All right, God created light. The first recorded words of God in the Bible. Let there be light, verse three. That's the first words of God recorded anywhere. Let there be light. You might have a note on that, I'm not sure. So, so light 
So what is light? Well, you know what? Is it a particle? Is it a ray? Is it, what, what is it? I don't know. And there's engineers here that, you know, will tell you one thing and some will tell you the other. But you see, light is an interesting thing. Light has a source in God. In fact, the Bible says that God is light. He himself, he is light. It's an attribute of God just as much as love is an attribute of God. Light is who God is. We remember back when the, um, when the children of Israel were traveling through the wilderness that, that a pillar of fire would go with them, that light would come and descend at times in the, in the, in the tabernacle. There was, there was the Shekinah glory of God, which is this, showing that God is the source of light. God is described as dwelling in inapproachable light. In 1 Timothy, I put the verse there, 1 Timothy 6, verse 15 to 16, it says, he who is blessed, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. Now there's a coronation, isn't it? But it says that God dwells in inapproachable light. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, this is the message that we have heard from, from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And then what God did was he, he divided the light from the darkness, evening and morning, one day. Thus the Jewish day begins in the evening and it ends the next day. So even in the way that the Jews celebrate things like Passover has its basis in something. What does it have its basis in? Oh, yes, okay. I thought something was going wrong. It has its its basis in Genesis. Evening and morning, one day. It's a 24-hour period, and that is the basis of the six-day creation. Day two, God made what is called the firmament. Now, I looked it up in another version, and I can't remember what the word was, and it was a better word. Uh, the expanse. Expanse. So it says in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, Then God said, Let there be an expanse, there's the word, uh, in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. So if that's how the second day played out, it's the same as the first day. A 24-hour day. An evening and a morning. A day. This would be an atmospheric division. The firmament, an expanse. Waters on the land separated from the water vapor in the sky. It's possible, it's possible, and I don't know if I subscribe to this or not, that there may have been like a vapor blanket around the earth that gave like a greenhouse effect back in those days. I'm not fully sure because guess what? I wasn't there. (laughs) And the Bible doesn't come out and say, yes, there is a vapor canopy around the earth. It doesn't say that. Some scientists have come to that conclusion. Some, some creationists have come to that conclusion. 
So it doesn't really matter, but all, all we know is that between the water of the Atlantic Ocean and the water in the clouds, God has made a space, an expanse, a firmament. Yeah, I won't go into the hyperbaric uh, blah, 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 blah stuff. Okay, day three. Day three. All right, here's where we're getting into the fun stuff. Let the waters appear below the heavens and be gathered to one place and let dry land appear, and it was so. This is the third day, okay? God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, Plants yielding seeds and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their own kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after its kind, and trees bearing fruit with seeds in them after their kind, and God said that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. So God set up the, the continental boundaries. He set up a, a separation of dry land and this bubbling ocean that was there on day one. And then he made plant life. Now, wait a second now. I haven't read about the sun. How's photosynthesis going to work? Oh, well, I guess we're going to have to wait a couple of days. So, but I do read some things here that are interesting. It says that the plants that were created and the trees had their seed already in them. He created them mature. He created them grown up. It's very interesting. They didn't grow up as a seed in the ground and then a tender little shoot that comes up and so on and so on on that day. He created them mature and whole and able to reproduce after their own kind. And, and I want you to notice how many times we come across, as I underlined here, after their kind, after their kind, after their kind. Now, why do I say that after their kind? And I really want to drive that home. You see, back in 1934, they took the loganberry and the raspberry and the blackberry and they did their magic that they do in the lab and they made this hybrid, hybrid plant, this, this thing called a boysenberry. Ever heard of boysenberry pie? Boysenberry jam? So boysenberry is a genetic hybrid of loganberries, raspberries, and blackberries, all put together, somehow modified, and it makes that. Hope you're taking notes, Bob, because <laughs> he's the plant guy. Um, but you know what it didn't make? An orange, or an apple, or a lemon, or an acorn. or dandelion, thankfully. It made after its own kind. If you look at a raspberry and you look at a blackberry and you look at a boysenberry, that's a boysenberry there, they all look pretty much similar, don't they? Not a whole lot of difference. I remember going through the museum in Calgary and about the evolution of the, uh, the crocodile. And here's this mocked up crocodile there and it was pretty long. He went from here to over there and I'm looking at it and thinking, hmm, Looks like a crocodile. And then I read the little thing about the evolution of the crocodile. Crocodiles have not changed very much over the last 30 million years. No, they haven't. <laughs> 
They, they are exactly what they are, crocodiles. So when God makes something after its own kind, it remains its own kind. There are no baboons that turn into tycoons. It just doesn't happen. You can't take, you can't take a cat and turn it to a rat. You can't take a horse and turn it to a butterfly. They reproduce after their own kind. Oh, but didn't I see a donkey down at the zoo in Aylesford? Yes, because a donkey is related genetically to the horse. It doesn't do this. Take a donkey and an elephant and turn it into a watermelon. I'm impressed. That's, that doesn't happen. They're after their own kind. So, you know, the chicken really did come before the egg in this state. It was, you know. So this is the beginning of life on earth. Now, the quote at the bottom here, it says, some scientists now say that life on earth began when immense meteorites carrying amino acids impacted the earth at a time when the sun was cooler, the earth was a watery ball covered with ice up to a thousand feet thick. That idea that a meteorite, meteor hit the ice, broke through, and seeded the water underneath with the building blocks of life, which assembled into an organic soup. However, the process was triggered. The science, scientists said life on Earth began as a geologic, in, in a geological instant. By an instant, they mean 10 million years or less. In the opinion of the author, it takes more faith to believe this than to believe in Genesis. Day four. Ah, here we go. Now the plants will be able to really reproduce because their leaves will be able to go through that whole process of photosynthesis. Because the sun and the moon and the stars have been created. Verse 14 to 19, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens and separate the, the day from the night and let there be signs, uh, let there be for let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens and give light to the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens and gave light, in, uh, on, the, and gave light on the earth. And to govern the day and the night and to separate the light in the evening from the darkness, God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. So here we have the sun and the moon and the stars. The lights in heaven are created. Signs and seasons. He made the stars also. Like when you think of how many gazillion and bazillions of stars there are out there, it just gets a little tagline like, oh yeah, he made the stars also. I mean, it's just amazing. The size of the universe and what was created. Amazing design, the universe What's interesting about our universe, everything has just the right gravitational force. If it were larger, the stars would be too hot and would burn up too quickly and too unevenly to support life on Earth. If, if it were any smaller, the gravitational force, the stars would remain so cool that nuclear fusion would never ignite and there would be no heat and no light. The universe has just the right speed of light. If it were greater, stars would send out too much light. If it were less, stars would not send out enough light. The universe has just the right 
average distance between the stars. It keeps them from colliding with each other. If it was smaller, their orbits would become destabilized because of the gravitational pull that holds them together. Everything has an order in it. That's my point. Everything God created has a divine order in it. God is a God of order. And he's put his order in everything that he's made. We can conclude that there's no chance that such a universe would ever create itself. It had to be designed. It had to be an intelligent design. Day five. Oh, sorry guys, there it is in Spanish. <laughs> Day five. So, do you know that I'm getting close to the end because how many days are there? And where are we? All right, good. So we're getting there. So, day five. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and birds fly above the earth in the open uh, expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves uh, with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and... Uh, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Again, God created in abundance. He didn't create a bird. He created an abundance of birds. He created an abundance of fish and whales and sharks and all of those things. He created them all in abundance and mature. How do I know they were mature? Because the birds were flying on the day that they were made. I, I, I once in a while get the robins, they lay an egg or five in my, in my bush out there and I go out and I watch it and then eventually I see little, little robin faces. They're the ugliest birds. Those little baby robins are so ugly. <laughs> so, you know, you'll see five of the little beaks there. The mom will come and then a week later they're like busting this nest. They're so big. And then they're gone. They flew away. But it takes about two weeks. But it says here that he created them and they were already flying in the skies. They were created mature. They were created again after their own kind. You know, Darwin has a real problem. And the problem is, it's not clergymen and paleontologists that are his strongest opponents. It was the fossil evidence. As, as, as we now see created life, animals and plants have been created. One of the things that he said, he said, the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory, the theory of evolution, and because of our fossil evidence, the most em eminent paleontologists and all of our greatest geologists have unanimously and often vehemently maintained that the species does not change. That's a quote from Darwin on the imperfection of the geological record in his book, Origin of Species, and that is the full name of the book, Origin of Species. And you read that and you realize what Origin of Species is actually all about. And it is very, very offensive. The title of Origin of Species, which you don't often hear of, is Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. That is an offensive title. 
That is his objective. That is his objective. And that is why Adolf Hitler loved to read Origin of Species because it played right into his hand. So if you're wondering what's behind a lot of this, that is what is behind all of this. Because where eventually all of this goes, if we're all just blobs of protoplasm, and it's okay to step on an ant, then it's okay to step on a baby. If it's okay to kill a kitten, then it's okay to kill a child. Because it's all the same. It's just a multicellular organism. And that should be offensive to every Christian. The fossil record stood against, and the geological record stood against what Darwin was proposing here. Here's a couple of quotes from a couple of people who are not creationists and not Christians. David B. Kitts, an evolutionary paleontologist, despite the bright promise that paleontology provides a means of seeing evolution, it has presented some nasty difficulties for the evolutionist. The most notorious of which is the presence of gaps in the fossil record. Evolution requires intermediate forms between species and paleontologists does not provide them. In other words, you will nowhere find a monkey turning to a man in the fossil record. As I see some of you fading, I'm going to move along fairly quickly here. Evolutionist Niall Eldridge wrote this. We paleontologists have said that the history of life in the fossil record supports the story of gradual evolution, all the while knowing that it does not. Really? We've been promoting a lie, and we're okay with that. Christians, we should not be okay with that. Parents, you should not be okay with that if that's what your children are learning. I am only going to read to you day six. That way I go on record for finishing Genesis chapter one. Then God said, let the earth bring forth uh, living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God said that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast on the earth and to every bird in the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have, I have given green plant for the green plant, every green plant, sorry, for food and it was so. God saw it, all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. I'm not going to say anything more on those verses. We'll come back to those. Again, animals created after their kind, verses 24 and 25. Man 
created in the image of God, we are totally different from the animals. Don't let anybody tell you you were just in that whole Linnaean chart of animals. You are not. You are uniquely made. All right, thanks for the science lesson, but what does that mean for me here today at Northbrook Bible Chapel in 2013, 2023? <laughs> <sighs> kind of wish it was 2013. <laughs> First of all, God is an awesome God. He is an awesome God. He made all of this. He made everything you see. He gave you your life, your body. Sometimes you might have a little beef with him about that, but he, he did, he made it for you. He gave you that. He gave you your intellect. He gave you your emotions. He made all of those things. So if there is a God, and he made you, and he made me, Therefore, I am responsible to my maker. I have a responsibility to him. And he tells me that I am to worship him and him alone. Secondly, a little more science for you. We live in a really big universe. Really, really big universe. So we're in a little galaxy called the Milky Way. It's 10,000 by 100,000 light years. And if you could go 300,000 kilometers per second... You could go around the earth seven and a half times in one second. And then in that little space capsule, if you decided I'm going to go to the moon, it's a second and a half. That Dr. Hansen that's going to go to, to, the, to the moon there, like he wishes he could do it in a second and a half. In two minutes, 18 seconds, you'll reach Venus. Four minutes, you'll sail past Mercury. Seven and a half to nine minutes, you'll get to the sun. Four hours, you get to Pluto. Four years, four months, you'll get to our nearest star. 100,000 years, 100,000 years of 300,000 kilometers per second, per second, per second, you will leave the Milky Way, one galaxy, on your way off the front step. You're basically on the front step at that point in time. That's how big the expanse of the universe is that our God made. God is great. Ken said amen. amen. God is great. <laughs> he is an awesome God. He has made all of this. Thirdly, and most importantly, here's the whole point of the book of Genesis. He didn't only make the earth. He's interested in the earth. He cares for the people on this earth. He is interested in you and he's interested in me. To the point that in this whole universe we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son into this world. Why? Not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, in all of this and all of the awesome things that God has created and done, we have offended God. We have sinned against him. 
We have broken the relationship for what he initially planned for us. But he provided a way because he so loved this world that he sent his son to die for us. He came to die for you. He came to, to reverse all that is wrong with this world. He, he created it. It was all very good. That was the last thing we read. It's all become very bad, hasn't it? But it can be very good again. Come to Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and, and you've never come to trust him, the whole point of the book of Genesis is to point you to him, the savior of the world the one who came to save your soul. Father, thank you this morning. I thank you for everyone's patience to actually sit for a long time. And I, I pray, Lord, that your word will impact our hearts. Not anything that I say or teach, but just the word of God that will penetrate our hearts. Father, you are so awesome, so huge, so wonderful in what you have made. You own it all. You made it all. And Father, you sent your son to die for all of us that we may be restored to a relationship with our creator and live eternally with him. I pray for anybody who may be here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ that they will come to trust him. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.